Welcome to the Team EF Coaching Performance Podcast, where we take information from the highest level of sport and make it accessible for all cyclists. I'm usually your host, Zach Morris, but today this podcast is being hosted by the three of us. Let me introduce you once again to our favorite repeat guest, none other than the legendary Colby Pierce. Colby, take a bow since this is a video podcast. <laughs> And new to the Team EF Coaching Performance Podcast, but not new to Team EF Coaching, our in-house full-time nutritionist, Spencer Miller. Spencer, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So today's format is something we have not done before. First of all, if you're listening to this only on audio, you should know that this is available on YouTube. So if you want to look at any of our funny facial reactions as we go through this episode, or maybe enjoy some hand examples, you can check it out on YouTube. What we're going to be doing today is answering the comments from Instagram. So we posted this week and asked you guys to let us know what your questions were and promise you that we'd answer them live on air. So that's what's going down. Colby, Spencer, and myself are going to do our best to put as much value into this podcast as we possibly can and answer all of your questions. So Let's begin, gentlemen. How this is going to work is uh, we'll take turns picking comments and then having a little bit of a roundtable on each comment. So who wants to go first? Spencer, I feel like you should go first. You've got, we got lots of nutrition questions that popped up. All right, we'll do it. So the, the first one, I assume you want me to read the question off. Please, and mention the username. All right, all right, all right. So it's... Night Colors Recording, they asked, I'm writing the first half of the Tour de France for a charity event the week before the pros. What is the best advice around eating as soon as one ride finishes and prep for the next day's riding? Okay, so that's a good one. Um, in reality, like the simple answer is as soon as possible. Um, right when you're done with the event, you want to replenish your glycogen stores as soon as possible, get some protein in with it. But the main thing is going to be replenishing those glycogen stores. Um, that's going to be super important for the next day. And that's when you're going to be most receptive to, to the carbs. Your insulin response will be a lot better. So getting those carbs in right after you're done training as quick as possible. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be like, you know, you can't unkit or shower or anything like that, but ideally within 30 minutes or so, you know, have something with some protein, a good amount of carbs, and then you'll want to have a meal following that as well. But just making sure to get it in as quick as possible without waiting a super long time will We'll make sure that you replenish the glycogen stores and get the recovery process started as soon as you can so that you're going to be ready for the next day. And that that can be a little bit tricky too, like depending where you are, right? So if you're at a hotel and there's a restaurant straight downstairs that's open all the time, like a lot of these hotels in Europe, they're like, the restaurants are closed at weird hours, right? So you go downstairs, you're like, I'm starving. I need to get something. You're like, great. The restaurant is closed. 30 minutes is about to pass. Oh no, the world's going to end. No, just... Have a look around uh, before you even go out for your ride and see what kind of restaurants are in the area. I mean, you're in France, right? Like, y you want to enjoy your experience there. So do yourself the favor. Look around at what restaurants are around. Pick out the one you really want to go to. Make sure they're open when you're going to be, like, getting in from your ride. Get in from your ride. Go for a shower and, and hit that place up. But planning ahead of time will be your best resource i think in my opinion when it comes to just trying to stay on track especially when you're in foreign environments um colby i'm sure you've uh you've got some war stories of being in overseas and 
panicking to 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 find something to eat after after a hard workout in in a, in a weird place. What what did you typically do in those scenarios? Yeah, you're right. So many times I remember at one point, actually my my teammate at the time, Daniel Holloway, Holloway and I flew to uh, Germany for a six day, and we got there, and it was the exact situation like the restaurant was open for an hour when we arrived at the hotel. But by the time we got upstairs and unpacked our stuff and got showered because we've been traveling for 24 hours and da da da, we went downstairs and the guy told us the restaurant was closed. So we had to go scavenge in the wasteland of Germany. And, you know, you can do pretty well at it. If you find a reasonable market, you can just kind of hack your way through a recovery meal with something really simple, like a baguette and a little bit of cheese and a little bit of ham, right? It doesn't need to be the fanciest thing in the world. Ideally, it's not super refined junk food. Well, we want to avoid stuff that's, well, more refined, you know, um, but I'll say to Spencer's point about getting glycogen in your system, the rules are broken here when we're on the bike and when we're trying to recover foods that are normally really not good for you in terms of glycemic load are what you want when you're trying to recover as fast as possible. So, you know, all the things everyone tells you not to eat normally, like apple pie and donuts, well, donuts, you shouldn't eat anyway, but anything really, really sugary right? Uh, that's going to, why, why do we not eat sugary foods? One, because they're bad for our teeth. And two, because they drive our glucose through the roof. And then we get an insulin response that which then causes a blood sugar crash. And then that cycle has all kinds of downstream ramifications, especially if you do it all the time. But that rule gets broken when we're trying to recover from a hard ride, a hard training ride. And we know, especially if we have to train again the next day, you got to get the sugar in your system as quickly as possible. And if you're really depleted, and if you're starving or if you rode really hard, then the, the insulin response gets blunted because your system just sucks it right in. It doesn't even, it goes straight into your fuel tank and there's less of an opportunity for your blood sugar to rise from that insulin hit. And I would, I would say too, something to add to that is like, as far as like Zach saying that a restaurant might be closed, like for me personally, I'll always keep like an extra scoop of protein in my race bag and then like some sort of carbs. It could be something simple like cereal. It could be banana fruit, like it doesn't have to be the perfect post-race meal, like making sure you're getting in a little bit of protein and plenty of carbs. It doesn't really matter what it looks like, you know, like, again, something that you normally wouldn't want to have off the bike, like just a regular Coke after the ride. Like those types of sugars are what you want to get in after an event. Bananas, man. It's like the, it's like nature's power bar just hanging off a tree, like some of the best food for post-ride and oh, incredible nutrients inside of a banana. All right. Calcium, a little bit of fiber, good Good carbs, good water. This one was submitted by F period Forte underscore Photographia. How to get used to more aero slash aggressive position on the bike. Should do more core workouts and etc. Or slam the stem and get used to it little by little. This is a great question. It's of my opinion that being able to ride an aerodynamic position has much to do with how much motion priming you've allowed your body to do <clears throat> to simplify that how much training have you done at an easy intensity in the particular motion and position that you want to do i believe that so much of cycling and success in training is predicated on an athlete's ability to execute the position and then allow themselves to get comfortable in the position, which will then lead to one day 
being able to produce high amounts of power in that position. I think that a lot of athletes make the mistake of getting aerodynamic and trying to go hard straight away. And what's going to happen is you're probably going to be restricting blood flow in certain areas as you're getting more aerodynamic. And so you might feel more sensations of, let's say, the pump. Your legs might be filling with lactate more. You might be getting a bigger pump in this aerodynamic position at a lower heart rate even. And you don't understand why. So you just assume that you can't ride that position when the reality is that you haven't allowed your body to get acclimated to riding that position. You haven't done any motion priming. And so I think the first step in getting more aerodynamic is accepting that you can't just get neuro and go hard and fast straight away in that aero position. You need to allow your body to acclimate to the aero position. And for me, that's probably the the biggest fundamental that I can see that would allow you to start getting more aero. So ride a little bit easier. But I mean, Colby, you're the master of aerodynamics, my man, and biomechanics. So what's your take? I agree with what you said. I would add to it. A lot of it has to do with riders not riding in the aero position enough. And if you start off really quickly, if you think you're just going to jump into a super aero position, maybe you just got a time trial bike and you've slammed the the bars down to a ridiculous angle because you want this super horizontal torso because we think that's fast, right? And the first thing I'll say is we don't actually know that's fast until it's tested. Fluid dynamics are really complicated. But that aside, that point aside, you can start off by doing lots of easy kilometers in that TT position, or you can start off by going really hard in that TT position. To Zach's point, if you start off by going really hard, you're probably going to be on the struggle bus for a while, especially if you've been riding a road bike and let's say you're just coming off the winter or a, you're in a colder climate and you've been riding indoors on Zwift a lot because that type of riding, the thing about Zwift is, or indoor riding, and I'm just using this as an example, is that it doesn't really teach a rider the association with being aero and going fast. It just it teaches the rider to associate making more power with going fast. But that's not how real world cycling works. When you're on someone's wheel in a race, and you're starting to lose the wheel. You're just beginning to lose contact. You're like a length and a half off the back. You'll feel more wind hitting your face. You'll hear more wind hitting your ears. And if you're sitting really upright and then maybe accidentally you get low for a moment or you shift to the correct direction and you're in more in the draft shadow, then if you're paying attention and not just blindly trying to pedal harder, you might figure out, ooh, it's better for me to be on this side of the wheel. And oh, if I drop my head a little bit, ah, I hear less wind. And then you drop even more. And then before you realize what's going on, you're in this super tiny position. And then instead of going harder to to stay in contact with that rider, you got smaller, right? There are different ways to go fast. So what I'm getting at is there's this relationship between speed and not only power output, but also body position that really influences the outcome of a race. So when we're, when we're training indoors, I'm going off on, on a bit of a tangent here, but when we're training indoors or if we're training by ourselves a lot, we don't necessarily learn those associations and they're super important. All that said, I think what Zach outlined is the spectrum of how to handle this problem. Do I gradually make changes and begin to add easy miles in the position? Or maybe I just go for broke and put it in the arrow position, but start with easy miles and avoid intensity. Or do I just go all in and start doing intervals? 
And I've personally tried both approaches. I've been horrendously out of shape and got on my TT bike and just started hammering my brains out. And when I did that, uh, January of one year, I had one of the best seasons of my entire career that year. Now that said, that was a really, really painful way to go about it. And I had to be incredibly knuckleheaded to get through it because it was like three months of me just bashing my head into a wall and suffering unbelievably badly in these intervals. It ended up paying off. Was it the best route to go on? I can't say in retrospect, probably not. I mean, it's what I needed to do at the time. I'll say it that way. It's, it was the lesson I needed to learn or the path I needed to take. But is it a possible outcome that I could have injured myself because I added so much intensity in such an extreme position that fast? Yeah, it's possible. Did I, uh, somehow I escaped injury. That was by a bit of luck. So it comes down to a little bit of what I would call the Tiger Williams mentality, right? Tiger, the golfer, he was sort of famous for, for ch making a change in his golf technique at any point in his career. And this is an unusual situation. Like there were multiple times where he would make a change to his technique and then his golf performance would go down and this would happen in close proximity to a major tournament. And people would ask him, why did you make this change? Why didn't you just go? You were on a winning streak and you could have gone and won the next tournament. And his response was always that he was thinking about the long game, that he wanted to win 10 more tournaments in the coming years, not just the one that was next week, even if it was a world level competition. And that would be the equivalent of you just slamming your bars and going out and do a bunch of intervals. Even if you know in the short term, you're probably going to go pretty slow and you're going to suffer a lot. So if that's your mentality, it might be the right choice for you. It's probably the minority of people who would get away with that and do it successfully, I would argue. So, but maybe that spectrum helps you outline things a bit in your decision-making process. Colby, I am refraining from jumping on several of those wormholes that you just opened up. We're talking about <laughs> fluid dynamics. Yeah. We're talking about contortionism. We're talking about many different factors that can impact your experience as you get more arrow. And I think just to, just to summarize, right, it's, it's something that you have to continually work on becoming more efficient at. It's not an overnight thing, no matter what way you go about it, because I'm sure even though that season, you had a great season, Colby, you said it was, it was really hard to go through that process, right? So still week after week, you had to get better and better and better at it, even though you were, you were doing it with the hammer, right? Mm -hmm. But you still had to continue to get better. So take your time with it, folks, uh, work at it, but let it be something that you do work at because one thing we need to be you know, honest about is that the wind is the greatest thing we fight against on the road, right? So getting arrow matters a lot. Really Absolutely. important. Absolutely. All yeah. right. Let's, let's lay that one to rest. Cause we could literally do this entire podcast we could. on that single, <laughs> single shit. Colby. You know what? That's why we have, that's why we have a podcast so we can do more episodes and unpack all this stuff, right? This is why the sport is beautiful. Cause there's so many ways to go. And let us know, listeners, listeners, if you are a fan of the Team EF Coaching Podcast, let us know if you want us to go deeper on any one of these topics on social. Comment. You just opened the floodgates, buddy. Let's go. Bring it. <laughs> Let's go. All right. So um, I noticed a question here from chris.rides.mtb. I was hit by COVID recently. 
The main symptoms were gone after a week, but I could still feel it in the chest and see it on the whoop. The last two days, I started feeling normal again, and resting heart rate and HRV are back to normal values. How should I approach the return to training? I guess there's plenty of experience on that from the Peloton recently. Yeah, um, you're absolutely right, Chris. There is. Uh, it seems that in spite of all everything we did, pretty much everybody on the planet has had COVID um, at least once. So it is what it is, right? I think this is a great question. And um, the answer is unfortunately going to be somewhat vague, although I'll try and give you a few maybe guiding principles. And then I'm sure Spencer and Zach will have things to add to that. But the absolute bottom line, whenever you're recovering from any illness, whether it's COVID or a flu or anything else that hits you, in particular, a virus, the thing we want to avoid is some sort of rebound or something where a situation where you push a little bit too hard and then you get this aftershock that comes back and hits you again. I think, in my opinion, having experienced this also myself um, a few times in my career, this is a mistake that's commonly made and it's born out of a mentality of fear. And the fear is imagined. It's a scenario we make up in our minds and it's based on real events, right? So I don't know what your race goals are, what you're preparing for, but the unfortunate fact is you've gotten COVID and that's going to set back your training and preparation. There's no way around that. What I've experienced is when people allow fear to dominate their decision-making process, then they tend to make decisions that are a little bit panicky and probably not correct. And the incorrect decision would be to rush back into training, thinking that if you don't, you're going to be behind, you're going to suck at your next race. Think about it this way. Right now, as of the time of the recording of this podcast, it's May 26th. So if your race is in one or two weeks, from a certain point of view, this is going to sound pretty esoteric. You've already done that race. Your results already been made. You've already performed however you're going to perform at that race. So imagine that future. And now imagine... Having that experience, whatever it's going to be, whether you're going to crush it or be crushed or be in, in the Peloton, whatever that experience is going to be, imagine looking back on it and drawing a line from where you are right now to that experience and walking that line with as much grace and joy as possible. That's a different way I would offer to look at it than being in the panic mindset of, I have to, I if I don't, I will... And, and being in the mindset of this belief system that um, there are lines that must be drawn, otherwise you're going to suck or you're going to be embarrassed or your girlfriend's not going to love you anymore or your dad's going to think you were a failure or whatever stories you have going on about why you're a bike racer. And just let's just park those for a minute and imagine experiencing the sport with that grace and joy, right? Hopefully that can help you change your perspective. And the defining factor for making decisions about training in a more practical sense on a day-to-day -day basis, I would offer is simply this, honestly listen to your body. That is by far the most important metric. Meaning pretty much every, every ride for about the first two weeks, when you get back to the point where your resting heart rate are normal and your HRV are normal, every ride is basically an exploration. You're like, all right, I'm going to go out and I'm going to see how I feel. And after about a half hour warm up, I'm going to see how I feel. And then I'll push a little bit and I'll see how I feel. And the answer is, is as soon as you get any either weird feedback, you cannot get your head wrapped around, like odd sensations, like I felt chilled when it was really warm, or I felt, suddenly felt starving, or all of a sudden my legs felt like they were filled with acid. Anything that's just like out of left field, that is a sign that your body's going, whoa, this is not working. 
right? What we're looking for is a feeling or a sensation of normalcy and lightness. So you're like, yeah, I rode some zone two and it felt good or some aerobic endurance. And then I ramped up. Okay. I went up a climb to try to little tempo. Heart rate was pretty normal. Sensations were pretty normal. Power was pretty normal. Okay. All three of those markers, perceived exertion, heart rate, and power, they matched up with your normal experience. That says you're probably okay to do some more within reason, right? If you were like, oh, I'm feeling normal. I'm rested. I've got five days till my race. I need to go nuke myself. That would be probably a fear-based decision. Like I need to. Anytime you're thinking I need, it's probably based around fear. So let's just park that for a minute. Let's do something reasonable. You're trying to get from here to here. How do you get from here to here? Do you go like this and then like that? Well, you can, but that's probably going to be an injury to the body. I'm talking about this is a map of training load effectively, right? What we want to do is maybe make some dots in the middle and get you to the point that on race day, you can put together the months and months of hard training you've likely done, right? Fitness doesn't go away in one or two weeks. In spite of all the catastrophization you read, uh, all the studies that talk about how fitness plummets in a week off the bike and two weeks off the bike, just take all that crap, all that trash, and just park it for a minute. I, I can tell you, I can guarantee you, I've seen my athletes do it multiple times, and I've done it myself multiple times, where I've come from almost no training, but had a solid base of months, and shown up to a race and tied it together and had a perfectly good race performance. So you don't have to annihilate yourself for two weeks before the race. Guys, and and Colby, I would add to your point of like, you know, seeing how you feel and if you have a good day, just because you have one good day doesn't mean that the next day is going to be good too. You know, it's like day at a time. You have a good day, tomorrow could be a bad day. And then pay uh, attention to that and then see when your next good day is going to be. It doesn't mean once you have one good day, they're all going to be good and everything's normal again. It's a, it's a day at a time process. And as far as, you know, thinking of it like, an extra week recovering can save you two months of if you make yourself dig yourself a hole in that week. So think about it. What fitness are you going to lose in a week or what fitness are you going to lose in two months when you have a serious health problem or a serious issue that you didn't address initially? Yep. Very, very eloquent, eloquently put. So I'll, I'll add just a couple of thoughts to that. One is uh, Peter Atia, big fan of Peter Atia. He always says the greatest risk to your health long-term is the amount of time you spend not training, right? So we want to mitigate the amount of time that you spend off the field, off the road, off, off your bike. And so by trying to force things when they're not ready to be accepted by your body, you could end up spending more time off the road, making your performance go worse. I think you both you know, hit that, hit that point home. I will say that there are a couple of things that I've found to be helpful uh, for people who have been coming back from COVID. Inigo San Milan published a pretty cool study that showed that those who were suffering from long COVID effects were primarily lacking branch chain amino acids. And so by supplementing branch chain amino acids, you could, we don't know this definitively, but it could be a supplement that could help your recovery from long COVID. Additionally, we also know that COVID can collapse uh, some of your priming, uh, muscularly, muscular system priming and nervous system priming. And so if your zones 
let's say, collapse, and you're used to being able to do, very hypothetical, everyone, four minutes at 200 watts, right? That was your VO2 zone, four minutes at 200 watts. And you, you come out of your COVID recovery and you're like, okay, I'm going to go back to my four minutes at, at 200 watts and all of your uh, systems have collapsed. That is going to be really hard. And it, it, it's not going to be something that you're just going to be able to go out and do. So what I would say is ease back into those intervals, something I've seen work really well for people. And this, again, getting back to the four minutes at your output, it varies. That, that Getting back to your best, what I've seen in, in our athletes is, is, is it varies. But what I've seen is that cutting that duration in half or maybe down to a third and introducing the intensity in a more manageable uh, duration will help you get back to where you were a little bit quicker. So none of that is, aside from the, the Inigo San Milan portion, none of it's been proven in science. I'm not sure if we'll ever see that in a study anywhere, but it is some trends that I'm seeing in, in our coaching business. So happy to share those with all the listeners. And... Kind of a little side note that you mentioned around those BCAs with the Indigo San Milan study. Like, think about nutrition. What are BCAs and they're in protein? Take care of yep. your body. Yes. Well, you know, vitamins, you know, making sure your immune system is supported, all the little things that, you know, it, it's not just around like, am I resting or am I not training or whatever? It's like, it, it all adds up. So that's one of the biggest things you can do is sleep and have proper nutrition for, for your body to recover. Absolutely. Yeah, I think we have to keep in mind that fundamentally it's a virus attacking the mitochondria, right? So what you're doing when you're, at, when you're training, one of the primary stressors is stress to the mitochondria, right? So that's why we want to be careful about the application of intervals and interval loads. So Zach's suggestion of taking the, the number of minutes of work and cutting them down to one third or 50% of what you've done in the past, and also making sure to adjust your intensity as appropriate. Those are great suggestions, but fundamentally, that's what you're listening to is you're listening to your mitochondria and what they're telling you. Are they super smoked and four hours is not going to serve you today, but two might be okay. Then that's what you have to do. Come back to listening to the self, honestly. Are we going to lay this one to rest and move on to the next comment, guys? I'm ready to, to find the next question. Who's taking it? Spencer, you want to pull out another nutrition question? Yeah. So... Manu underscore Lessing. They said, what would your training and nutrition advice be for juniors or U19s? So that's, that's a really good one. I would say there's cycling is such a, you know, nutrition focused sport, weight, watts per kilo and all that stuff. Um, it's very easy to get too focused on things. But for me, the number one thing that I would start with anyone, um, no matter what your age, but especially if you are younger, is first of all, just making sure you're eating enough, making sure you're eating to fuel your training. If you're training a lot, you really need to eat a lot. Like you're not, restriction is not going to get you anywhere. You are always going to be better off doing better power numbers, feeling better, feeling healthy than being lighter. So with that said, really fueling for your training, making sure that you know the workload you're going to do for the day and fueling for it. And then another one that I, I always harp on all of our clients and our athletes about is protein. Um, that's something that a lot of people maybe think they're getting a lot of protein or they're eating things and they don't really realize how much they're getting, but making sure you're getting adequate protein um, for your recovery, you're going to be able to repair your muscle a lot better. So 
Um, we typically recommend about 1.7 to 2 grams per kilogram, and that's very dependent on how lean the person is already and everything like that. But really just the overall making sure that you're getting plenty of carbs to fuel your workouts, fueling during the training, and then adequate protein for recovery. And you don't really have to focus too much on all the minor details of how much or weighing something out, but making sure that you are, you're really just focused on fueling for the workload that you're doing and giving your body everything it needs. What was the, what was the age group that you mentioned? Uh, U19 juniors. I mean, man, U19 uh, on an international level, like you're a pro rider already. So uh, a a U19, you need to have the fundamentals down. And, and what Spencer just outlined are the fundamentals. Don't, uh, don't try to invent new rocket science with all the, uh, the sweet tips and tricks out there. You got to fuel for your workouts, recover from your workouts, and get your, get your intra-ride fueling down. And, there, I mean, there's a lot of different ways you could go about it, right? And I was thinking about this uh, today on my ride, and I was like, you know, it really depends on the person's budget. What is your budget? Because, you know, if you want to do high-carb fueling and you, and you want to be a very glycolytic rider, I mean, that costs like about 3 to $5 an hour while you're out there on the road because you need the carb packs. And so for a junior, this is something to consider. Is uh, mom and dad bankrolling this, this junior pro cycling journey or are you working at uh, the local Walmart to, uh, to fund your cycling? Like, wh- what's, the, what's the budget? Because if you have unlimited budget, let's say, or good support to support your your cycling journey then you can eat 60 to 90 grams of carbs an hour from you know like never second or whatever nutrition product you like to use and get a good recovery post ride and get all the right you know proteins from from i mean if you want to do animal proteins you you can but those are expensive again right so if your budget is strong the best way to go about it is high carbs during training high amount of protein and carbohydrate after you work out and simple carbs before you train. I would say that's, in my opinion, the most optimal way to, to get the best results from your training if you can afford it. But if you're on a budget, I mean, consider fat, fat adaption training, right? Consider building that system. I mean, we, I'm not going to throw too many deep daggers, but we have seen teams who were not winning the Tour de France, who later went on to win the Tour de France, uh, do several years of fat adaption training and then switch to uh, high glycolytic carb training and had much more success with that approach. But, I mean, there's 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 more than one way to go about it, and I think you really have to focus on what you can sustain. So, and you know, if, 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 if you're limited in resources, go for the fat adaption training, do long rides at an easier intensity, get as much fuel in while you can while you're out there but just don't don't hang yourself out there Go ahead. and i would i would also add to that you know you can you don't you don't have to train with a super expensive drink mix you know like i uh, you can make your own rice crispy treats at home you can do like you can do some simple white bread with jam like you can you can buy maltodextrin and fructose on amazon and mix up your own drink mix so you don't have to buy five dollar per bottle drink mix to get the job done there's plenty of ways to get the job done it's just like post-workout fueling with carbs like if you're during a training ride like gummy bears are okay you don't want to eat them while you're sitting on the couch but there's a lot of ways to get the result that you want without going out to buy the super expensive drink mix since 
there is very cost prohibitive. You might be, I, I mean, I don't want to like put down the drink mix because I mean, I'm, I think I've said this on a couple of podcasts now, like I actually did a test where I did candies for 30 days straight and nothing else while I was riding just to test this theory. Like, can you train at high intensity on gummy bears? And I will say I wore super sapiens. So I did, I did CGM monitoring while doing this self test and you can, you can fuel your workouts on gummy bears, but your stomach will not be very happy by the end of the first three days. Right. And that's where the nutrition products in the sport have actually made a lot of progress. So by, you know, and that's honestly like, this is not a sponsored episode, but that's why I love the never second range because all of their products are the same one to one malto to fructose ratio. So whether you're eating a bar, a drink mix or a gel, you're minimizing the amount of potential to get sick during training. Right. And, and when I say sick, I mean like upset stomach. You could like, you know, want to like go take a poop or something like that. So you minimize the risk of that by just putting one, the same, the same formula in all the time. So, so since you're saying that, do we want to follow that up with a very similar nutrition question asking why, what's the importance of cycling drink mixes and why not just use table sugar? Yeah. I think I just answered that. You're right. But like, that that was what someone asked, you know, and like about like other than just your stomach, you person, like why you actually. All right, so that was a eight, nosmahar. Apologies for my pronunciation. They said, "Are siphon drink mixes overrated? Can I just use normal sugar? What difference does it make?" Um, so that's kind of what Zach just covered the the gut discomfort, and there's a reason why, like you said, the mixture of glucose and fructose in never second. You have different glucose and fructose transporters in your stomach. So think of it like two sponges in your stomach, right? Like your glucose sponge can only hold so much. And so that's why for a long time, people thought you can only do 60 carbs an hour. Because um, depending on your size, that would be about enough to fully saturate that glucose transporter. And then the rest of the carbs you're consuming are kind of just sitting in your gut. And that's where you get the GI distress. So then they figured out there's also these fructose transporters in there. So then you have a second sponge. And that's why it's super important if you're going to be doing a lot of carbs per hour, you want something that is a dual source with like glucose and fructose. Your gut can absorb a lot more carbs per hour and actually utilize them versus them just like sitting in your stomach and then resulting in, in gut distress because you try to eat a hundred carbs an hour of just like table sugar or gummy bears. So, so to that point, you can train your gut to become more efficient at absorbing these carbs, but it's just like training your fitness. It's something you need to work at day in and day out. And I will say that the process of training your gut with table sugar or gummy bears, guys, it's pretty brutal. Like it's not a great thing as like a 35 year old person who does cycling for fun. Like at the end of the first week, I was seriously questioning my decision to commit to 30 days of this stupid trial. I will say that it was not a smart thing. Like I had an upset stomach for a month, um, to really test it. Right. But, uh, yeah, the the drink mix is better. Like if you have the option to do the drink mix, do the drink mix. It's it's definitely the way to go. Colby, next question. Go have go for it. You got me. Okay, man. There there are actually a lot of good questions that I see on here, and I'm torn on which one to answer. But I'm going to start with this one. Uh, Deidre with like six E's asks, <laughs> "What is wrong with me? 
nothing. <laughs> You're perfect. Well, he uh, started the question with what is wrong with you? Yes. Nothing's wrong with you. You are perfect as you are. If I go arrow with my position on the hoods, bent arms, like when you ride, after a while, my back starts to hurt. My back hurts like crazy. But if I only go on the drops with straight arm, my back would be fine. So that's a cool question. I mean, it's hard to say without seeing you on the bike. But if I had to hypothesize a bit, I would suggest that probably what's happening when you're riding with a with your bent position on the hoods is you're holding your posture slightly differently in a way that is putting more stress on the lower back musculature or the thoracolumbar fascia, causing some discomfort over time. It could be that your core is not quite up to the task of riding low in that position with bent arms. And so when you prop yourself on the drops with straight arms, you're giving yourself a little bit more stability. And it could be that your pelvic posture is also changing from those two positions. It may not feel like it, but there's a good chance that it is. And one of those, the bent arm position is clearly working the muscles of the lower back, or you are insufficient in your ability to counter the action of those muscles of the lower back with enough core, meaning anterior muscles, muscles in the front, the lower abs, most likely, most likely transverse abdominis. And if that's the case, then your solution is to probably investigate some core work of the right type which is quite a topic. Uh, Zach and I could easily do, I'm sure a whole pod, the three of us could easily do a pod on that entire topic. Core is kind of hot button word right now in, well, in the entire fitness industry. And it's like my abs, right, Colby? Sound about the abs, right? Six pack, eight pack. If you're Batman, it's a nine pack because he's got an extra ab, right? So yeah, that's actually a pretty short answer, but that's what I would say. It may not tell you what to do per se. Um, I would suggest that you look at, uh, do you have any, I would counter with a question. Do you have a core routine that you do in your training routine and your tra regular training routine right now? If you do, and it consists of plank and straight leg raises and maybe some crunches, which is what the most common answer I get when I ask people what they do for core. Sometimes I get um, hanging leg raises. These are poor choices in my experience for cyclists for core. And I'll just unpack that really briefly. Most people's, there's nothing wrong with a plank or a side plank per se. I don't think it's the best activity to, to, to dial in the core for cyclists, but most people do it with pretty lousy form. So they're not really helping themselves. And when we do straight leg raises or um, hanging leg raises, the problem is what we're trying to target is your lower abs your transversus abdominis muscle in conjunction with your pelvic floor and your diaphragm. And the problem is that most cyclists have really overdeveloped hip flexors and really weak lower abs. So when you get about three reps into those straight leg raises, you just, your hip flexors takes over. And all you're doing is training a muscle that's already tired from being trained on the bike and is already imbalanced. It's already stronger than it needs to be and shorter than it needs to be. So you're just sort of adding to the dysfunction. So we have to find core exercises that target specifically transversus abdominis and in ideally in conjunction with pelvic floor and diaphragm. And there's a few of those out there for sure. Um, I'll let you go forth and make the searches that those keywords alone will help get you somewhere. If you're not doing any work, then that all makes sense. Sorry. Go ahead, Zach. I, I agree with, with almost everything you said. I think that... And I think you probably agree with this too. I don't think there are good and bad exercises, but 100%. the issue is, is how people do them. Right. And so uh, do I think a leg raise is bad? 
No. Um, yeah. Do I th- do I think light rays is bad for most cyclists? Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. I do because right. so I'm not saying a light rays. Yeah. Right. And and I I think we we I, those of us who have been riding our bikes for our entire lives underestimate how difficult it is to hold a handlebar while you're riding your bike in the right way. And so like this, it, it's like this, like think about a shifter. Like, like it's not the most like intuitive thing to think about maintaining good postural alignment in your body whilst you hold on to this thing and pedal at 80 to 100 repetitions per minute. Like the whole idea of riding a bike is is like a weird thing. And so I think this question is a really tough one to answer because we're filling in a lot of blanks, right? Like we, we're, we don't have an image of this individual riding. We don't really know what the potential problem is, but like everything you mentioned is a very valid pot- potential problem, right? And it, it, it could be coming from so many different areas. So I think Colby's really right. Like you need to search for the problem. What is the problem? Where is this problem coming from? And 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 just be honest with yourself in 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 discovering where it is, and then look for resources. Colby left you guys some nuggets there that you can go and and look up if you're keen. Spencer, you have anything you want to add, or are we ready to move on? I was just gonna say this: the simple non-biomechanics answer I would give is like if you're a lot more comfortable and you have a lot less stress, being a little more aggressive, try dropping your stimulus spacer, like. My dad, I set him up on a bike. He wasn't comfortable. We dropped, made it a little more aggressive. It seems counterintuitive. He was a lot better. Like, you also got to find what worked for you. And like Colby said, he's not seeing you on the bike right now, but there's no one right bike fit for anyone. And so you got to find out what works for you, of course, along with all the core training. But maybe you are just going to be more comfortable, a little bit more aggressive, and you can try it out. It's as simple as just doing a quick swap and going for a ride and seeing how you feel. All right. I'm going to pick the next one, guys. This one comes from Verseek, says... I'm training to climb the Stelvio in June this year. I do Alp the Zwift three times a week and try to eat more protein after the climb. Is there anything else I can do? Should I keep my focus on Alp the Zwift or should I use more different workouts? Mm. Fascinating. So, hey, Zach, there's another question I would like to read real quick that's almost the same thing. So let's kind of do them both if that's all right. Okay, go for it. Navi.huck says, I don't have many hills where I'm living, so max climbs are like two kilometers long. Should I go and take, I'm I'm reading sick here. Should I go and take like 20 times the same hill or should I go indoor like Alta Zwift and go low cadence high torque? So similar question, right? Like like really we're getting at how much lifting should we do? <laughs> That's kind of... Okay, so let's let's think about this. You have a big hill that you want to be good at riding when you reach said big hill with your group of friends that you don't want to get beat by up the big hill, right? Mm-hmm. So, I think we have to look at one of the one of the key factors is time under tension. Right? How much time are you going to be under? consistent tension on the Stelvio. Can you do that on Zwift? Can you currently go and maintain a good amount of tension from start to finish of the amount of time that's going to take you to do the Stelvio? I think that's a big one. And then you also have to look at how you want to ride that climb. Are you and your friends racing up it? 
what type of disruption to your rhythm do we need to be prepared for? Are we looking at a series of 10 second, 90 to 100 RPM accelerations over steep sections out of switchbacks? And then a series of one minute to two minute, 75 to 85 RPM speed or momentum carries to the next steep section? Or are we looking at a steady pace from bottom to top? Because both of those approaches would honestly, in my opinion, require a little bit different preparation. So I, I, I think that you need to be one realistic about how long it's going to take you to do the climb and then train the duration at the expected intensity that you want to do it. And then you need to be realistic about building the abilities that you're going to need to be able to ride it the way you want to ride it. You know, I, I, I always laugh when, and maybe it's not a laugh. It's just like, I, I kind of roll my eyes at this state when, when, when I hear people say like, Oh, Hey, like I want to go and, 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 and do this race and on no preparation, basically. And I'm like, well, you know, can you, can you, can you currently go out and do like a solid four hour training ride? Like, is that something you can do? Can you like go out and like stay on top of the pedals for like four hours straight? Like maybe stop for a pee and not much more and just stay on the pedals and ride from start to finish for four hours because that's what it would take at minimum for you to do well in this race can you do that and they say well no well then how could you possibly expect to go and do that in a race when you're competing against other people all trying to to do well in that scenario right so i mean those are just like my thoughts in very generalized thoughts around what it would take to construct some idea around how you would prepare for a, a long climb that you don't have access to. And I think you could maintain that time under tension, even on a flat road. Yeah, you could do that. And you could do a series of surges if you wanted to ride it that way. And you could prepare your body pretty well, whether you're on Swift, whether you're on a flat road, whether you're going up and down climbs, you could spend time in zone that would allow you to be fairly prepared for the, the hill when you got there. What do you guys think? Um, I mean, yeah, like I think the, the greatest preparation is just being able to, to do what you're trying to do. I don't know that there's a, there's a correct answer by just doing Zwift. You know, I think you can, you can become good at climbing by riding on flat roads, by always being on the pedals. You know, it's like Zach said, if you, can you do the whole overarching goal? And if not, then that's what you first need to focus on. Yeah. How I think about it is it's the same for coaching and for fitting. Uh, you're counterbalancing two things. On one hand, you've got the physiology of the rider. How does that rider present to you at this moment, right? What is their flexibility? What is their range of motion? What is their fitness, right? What is their weight? What is their phenotype? And then on the other hand, you have the demands of their event. What is their goal? What is their dream or objective? Are you trying to ride this WO as fast as possible? Are you trying to ride it with friends? Are you riding it with a friend who's normally about as strong as you? And you've got a little more glycolytic capacity, so you're going to be attacking him. Or are you guys just riding to the top for fun? Or are you trying to make the fastest time from of a certain segment, the Stalvio segment on Strava or whatever? So all these are different goals potentially. And so ultimately you have to reverse engineer a training plan to get your current presentation of fitness to match the goal of the demand of your event. This is the essence of, of training. And I think that's all what we're kind of synopsizing. So if Zwift is the tool that can help you do that, it, I mean, I think we agree it is a tool. I think Zwift has limitations. 
Um, and I think it has some downsides, but is it a tool you can use in your arsenal to prepare you for that event? Sure. But if you also live in a flat place and you're preparing for a climbing event, like my other question, uh, also keep in mind that headwinds can effectively kind of give you similar physiological benefit to climbs. So if you're using headwinds for long intervals, if you have roads that are uninterrupted and you can intentionally ride into a headwind and do efforts into a headwind, that can simulate some of a similar demand. And it can give you what Zach was talking about, that time under tension, basically, where you're just constantly on the pedals for the the demand, the duration of the interval that would match the duration of your race event. So there are different ways to be creative with it. Use your gears, use headwinds, use whiff, use what you got, rock what you got. Do you guys mind if I pull another question out? There's one sitting here that uh, I don't want us to miss. So this is obviously coming from somebody who has been staying on top of the content that we've been putting out because they know some of our language. So this is coming from PKHUI, not going to try to say it, 88.funmail. Yep. Right. The question is, I have a question about pedal stroke and laying down power during a climb versus on the flats, particularly for endurance riding. What is the most efficient and effective portion of the crank rotation that a novice slash intermediate cyclist should concentrate on? The downstroke, the downstroke, scraping the mud of the cleats at the bottom or the upstroke? Thanks for in advance for your response. Colby. I love this question. <laughs> okay, first of all, um, I'm going to modify your question. I'm going to read it back to you. I have a question about pedal stroke and laying down power during a climb versus on the flats, particularly for endurance riding. Okay. Particularly for endurance riding. I would assume that we're talking about endurance riding in all cases. So I, it suggests to me that you're talking about lower intensity riding, but lower intensity riding is the same as upper intensity riding. It's just on a spectrum. So that's the first point I want to make. If you're riding for four hours in aerobic endurance pace or zone two, that's fundamentally the same technique you should be using for tempo and even threshold. Do things change when you're sprinting out of the saddle? Yes, of course. But there's still fundamental technique involved, and that's what I'll uncover. What is the most efficient and effective portion of the crank rotation that a novice or intermediate cyclist, full stop, doesn't matter if you're a novice, intermediate, or the world's best pro. The answer is the same. So let's be clear on that. So I'm going to rephrase that. What is the most efficient and effective portion of the crank rotation that a cyclist should concentrate on? The downstroke? Scraping mud off the cleats at the bottom or the upstroke? The answer is E, none of the above. The most important part for you to focus on is the first part of the downstroke. When the crank is vertical, so if we're looking at the bike from the drive side, at 12 o'clock when the crank goes to 1, 2, and 3, this is all the power phase of the stroke. And it's where you can apply power both forward and down and this is the part that, in my experience as a fitter, most people neglect to focus on. And they're just thinking about all the other things, scraping mud and pulling up and doing other weird circles or figure eights or whatever they've been told to do. And this is a great example of tripping over dollars to pick up dimes. The most important part for you to focus on is the first quarter of the downstroke, or really the first half, from 12 to 3, from when the crank is vertical to when the crank is horizontal. Why? Because humans are meant to push down fundamentally. we That's what happened when we went from quadruped to biped. We developed a lot of force to push against the earth so we could run and walk. 
which is the primary drive of all locomotive methods of human beings, right? It is, it is the synopsis of all the things we do, run and walk. It is what people do. And then we ask, how do they move? And that's fundamentally characterized by pushing down. So we want to maximize our ability to push down and everyone pushes down when the crank is horizontal from here and down. And sometimes past six o'clock, that part's pretty much hardwired. It's basically running on a bike. How we refine your pedal stroke is instead of ignoring the first half of the power phase, we expand the first half of the power phase. So we push forward and down and then down. And at the bottom, we pull back, but not up. And in particular, when you ask, should we scrape mud off the cleats? If the answer is you're pulling the foot back into the heel cup of the shoe, then the answer is yes. But I do not advise that people pull up on the upstroke at all. This is not a popular opinion, and maybe Zach and Spencer don't agree with this, but there are definitely other bike fitters who do not agree with this, and I'm happy to discuss it with them. But I do not agree that pulling up at all during seated cycling is ever a goal. Standing cycling, that is out of the saddle, sprinting, attacking, jumping out of corners, climbing, that's a different category. But if we're talking about seated climbing, I do not advise that we pull up at all. None. We're focusing on the front half of the pedal stroke from 12 to 6 on the left and 12 to 6 on the right. Or technically that would be 12 to 6, but the other way passing through 9. But anyway. We're focusing on the front half of each pedal stroke. And two halves make a whole. So we're focusing on the forward component of the downstroke and the bottom backward component of the downstroke. The three o'clock part, the push down when the crank is horizontal, that takes care of itself. I I I, so, I agree. I think that you know it's funny when when we first started Team EF coaching, uh, I actually debated with Colby on this because I was pulling up on my on my upstroke, and I was like, okay, buddy, I'm gonna test this out. Let me let me see what let me see what it's all about. And I will say that uh, there's this little muscle in your body called the psoas. It's a it's not actually little. It's very long. And it's the deepest muscle in your body. They call it the muscle of the soul. It connects your upper body to your lower body. If you don't know what it is, it's it's spelled P-S-O-A-S. Psoas. There's a P in there. Tricky. But this is a fight or flight muscle. And when you aggravate this muscle, it aggravates your life. And by pulling up on the upstroke, you're really antagonizing this aggressive little fight or flight muscle and all it takes is just a couple minutes of bad technique and you're into two years of corrective exercise work trying to relieve back pain and uh be just feel good on your bike again so i'd say if we go back to you know peter atia's famous uh, saying that your biggest risk to your health or in this case your your performance is not being able to train properly if I got slightly more power by pulling up on my upstroke but then I couldn't ride my bike for three months because I jacked up my hip flexor is that a good strategy no because I'm going to lose way more fitness in the three months or in my case two years of not being able to really train properly then I, I would I would gain if I just stayed consistent. And honestly, I think that it's, there is no performance gain in pulling up on the upstroke. I think that 
it is more efficient to just focus on the power phase. I, I, I'm not so sure that we can't start pressing forward from 11 o'clock on the scale if we really, and this is all individually, individual, right? Like based on somebody's physiology and their flexibility and their muscular recruitment and how they, their body moves and, and, and how much corrective exercise that work they've done and how much stability they've done and how active their feet are, you know, like all of these different variables that could change the outcome of this. I think that we can actually, in the pedal stroke, start pushing forward all the way back at like 11 o'clock if we're using the 12-hour clock scale. So I think that to all of your points, Colby, which were all excellent points, I think that developing your pedal stroke is not exclusive to pro riders. I think that the moment that your pedal strokes starts to deteriorate, you start to lose efficient efficiency, and it's the beginning of the end, right? Like you're eventually going to start to either a slow down very shortly after or b at, or maybe at the same time develop an injury develop something that's going to keep you off your bike going to keep you from progressing long term i think that cycling because it is such a repetitive sport and guys i, I can't hit this point home hard enough right there's not many other activities in the world where you will go out and do, ah, gosh, you know, what's 80, 80 RPMs a minute for an hour? How many repetitions is that? Six, 6,000, right? Like tens of thousands of repetitions in a normal length ride. We could say right? that. Yeah. There's, there's not that many sports, even a basketball player. Like you hear some extreme stories of a basketball player shooting like 200 free throws, right? In a, in a warm up or something like that. Guys, we do thousands and thousands of repetition of this pedal stroke in a sport where there's no impact. So when we're developing something that is out of alignment or not correct, we're really developing it. <laughs> we're really working it in there. We're really building that bad habit into our nervous system. And we're teaching our body to move that way. And we're really teaching it that it needs to move this way. And so anything that we're winding up with bad technique becomes so hard to unwind in the future. And so I would encourage all the listeners, before you try to build your FTP, before you try to do anything extreme, make technique your priority. Learn how to pedal your bike and become efficient at it through different intensity ranges. If you're feeling really good at endurance in, 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 in your comment, which would be low intensity. If you're feeling, you're feeling like your pedal stroke's really good at, at low intensities, start challenging yourself to get really good at slightly bigger intensities and then work your way up. Because one of my rules of thumbs that I, that I do with my athletes is when we do VO2 efforts, we might do VO2 efforts like a little bit lower than like our maximum effort, but our form is perfect. We're completely connected with the effort. Everything from the way our toes and our sho shoes feel to our, our, our plantar, to our hamstrings, to our quadriceps, to our core, to our, with our hip flexors, everything all the way up to our eyeballs and how we're looking forward is 100% in our control. Our arches aren't collapsing. We're not deteriorating our motion. Everything is in control. And the moment that you can't control it is the moment that you should back off a little bit, 
right? Because training and becoming better is not about throwing your knockout punch on fight night every single day, right? We're not in the championship round every single day. We train to prepare for those moments. So when all systems collapse and everybody around us is on our hands and knees, we have the best play to make in sport. And so I think that, you know, focusing on form and really working on that pedal stroke is, is one of the most important things all athletes can do. It's something I, I continue to work on every single day. Cycling is a, is a funny sport because um, it's a sport that relative to most other sports, camouflage is a bad technique. And that's, I think, why Zach is saying it's so important for us to train with technique in mind. We don't have a lot of cycling coaches talking about technique in cycling. And there's some sports physiologists who go so far as to say that technique actually doesn't matter at all. Oh, that one. <laughs> drives me nuts. Drives me absolutely batty, right? Uh, I couldn't disagree more. And look, this is really easily demonstrated. I mean, if you have horrible technique in the swimming pool, you know how slow you are as a swimmer, right? And if your technique's bad enough, you're on the verge of drowning. If you have horrible technique, cross-country skiing, skate skiing, for example, you're going to fall over constantly because the sport is so dependent on balance. So if, for those of you who have never cross-country skate skied, it's this delicate, you're, it's like you're skiing on a fence post the entire time and you can fall off either side at any moment because there's so much technique involved. And then when you increase your effort, it becomes harder to, to execute that technique. So you, sometimes you go harder on cross-country skis and all you do is end up falling over or you go slower because you fight with the skis more. There's this real super Cinderella relationship between how hard you can go and how well you can maintain the movement needed to go forward. And the other example is running. If you have horrible technique running, you just get injured or you buy hokas and camouflage your injuries and then you get injured eventually anyway. But Cycling is a sport that camouflages all those problems. You can axe chop the pedals on a $12,000 time trial bike and still go 27 miles an hour on a flat road. You can be an absolute train wreck of an athlete, be super tight and barely capable of touching your toes and your shoulders are folded in and you can't stand upright all the way and you can't actually get your hip flexors to extend to neutral, let alone into extension, right? I mean, these are basic things that any athlete should be able to do. You can't do a single push-up or pull-up but you can ride 27 or 28 miles an hour on a $12,000 bike and you think you're hot snot. And I would argue that you're a long way from what real athleticism is. Sorry to say something that's a bit poking the bear a little bit. This is just how I feel. I think that health underlies athletic performance. And if we don't have global holistic health, if our guts are inflamed, if our core doesn't work at all, if we can barely touch our toes, then we're not going to achieve our best performance in cycling. And this is... This is, uh, I'm, I just stabbed a sacred cow right now. Like there's a whole tribe of cyclists who believe that all you need to do to ride a bike is ride your bike and eat pancakes. And that's it. And sleep as much as possible and never walk and make your girlfriend carry the groceries. That's their entire belief system right there. Ride more, walk less. And look, I'm not here to tell you you're wrong, but I will tell you you're not achieving your highest athletic potential. And your girlfriend's going to get really grumpy with you after a while. Because she doesn't always want to carry the groceries. Just saying. I, but I, no, man. It, it, but it, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And this, this was. So this is this. We're going deep on this one. So I hope, I hope you guys are, are appreciating this, this level of, of depth because it's, it's 
hard for us with the level of passion we have not to go down these wormholes. I promise you we are like resisting to, to just to try to keep this concise. But I will say that this point has never been more clear to me in my life than right now. I recently started coaching a 60-year-old athlete who raced in the world tour who was and has always been an amazing athlete but the strategy for the most part i will say has been go harder always just go a little harder keep up with the latest health stuff try to stay healthy but at the end of the day you got to go hard and the key principle that i've laid out in our training plan is that we're going to do a small amount of the right things every single day right i don't care about how tough you are and how hard you want to push that doesn't impress me it never will impress me right but what i do care about is achieving the long-term results that we've set our objectives around and in order to do that we need to do what colby was said and accept that we need to bring out the best athlete the best athlete and the best athlete means somebody who has systemic health they're, they're they're healthy all around and every everywhere from their foot like i said to their eyeballs right everything's working well and within two weeks of working with this athlete i had a comment in our in our training software zach i'm just going to tell you straight i'm feeling better right now than i did when i was a pro rider i have not felt this way in 40 years it's like, okay, <laughs> like I'm not a miracle worker. This is not like, you know, we're just doing the basic things right. And so if you are somebody who's like been in this tunnel where you're just like hard work, hard work, hard work, it, it, we're, we're not in a sport where like just being tough and just pushing through it like provides you any additional benefits to a certain point. And there is definitely, you know, a place for these athletes to take a step back and say, hold on a second here. Can I get better if I just get a bit healthier? And the answer for you guys wondering is yes, you can. And healthier could mean, you know, learning how to use your feet, learning how to, uh, you know, build a, a healthier thoracic spine, learning how to separate some of these muscles in your body that are stuck together so that you can move things independently and just be a, an athlete that doesn't have numb hamstrings or uh aching neck while you're while you're riding the answer is yes you can absolutely get better so we're improving your diet right there you go there you go yeah. does anybody else have a question they want to they want to pull up yeah so we got one more um it's from h carter i'm past that phase of learning how to eat during training however still struggling to eat during races since pace is much higher any tips on that? Also, which foods are best for it? I feel like some protein bars are too dense to eat easily. So, Hot tip. Probably avoid the protein bars. Yeah, that that's the first tip. Is There's there's certain things you want to eat on the bike, and there's certain things you don't. Things that are going to slow digestion, they're going to be hard to, you know, slow. So you don't want super high fat. You don't want a bunch of high protein things. You want easy to digest carbs on the bike, so that's going to be the first thing. Um, I would not recommend protein bars on the bike. Um, so that's kind of the first thing. It's just easy to digest things, things your your stomach's going to be happy about. Um, and then 
struggling to eat when the pace is much higher. And that goes back to our talk earlier about like drink mixes and getting a really good drink mix. Like you're pretty much always going to have that sensation of thirst. And it's much easier to grab your bottle and take a squeeze of that bottle versus trying to open a gel or open chews or whatever it is that you're going to be eating. So choosing your type of fuel for the type of effort you're doing. If you're going on a long endurance drive, then yeah, sure. You know, take some Rice Krispie treats with you, like take some stuff that you can actually eat. But if you're going to be doing a race or you're riding during hard intervals, like think about that and think about what you would want to consume during that and and avoid the things that are going to be hard to eat. Because if it's hard to eat, you're not going to eat it and then you're not going to get enough fuel and then you're going to balk. And it's just, it's a whole, it, it's a wormhole that you go down. So picking picking what you consume and that's why, like we said, the high carb drink mix are so hot right now because it's just every sip you get, you're getting a steady flow of glucose you're getting a steady flow of carbs and you're just able to maintain that high energy level. Um, so that kind of answers, you know, your tips on that and like which foods are the best for it, you know, like not every training ride you're going to eat the same thing on. So just like every day, you're not going to eat the same amount because you're going to be training more or less. So you got to pick and choose the fuel based on the type of training you're doing. Colby, you got anything you want to add to that? Um, I would say there are instances where like, I agree. Like, like I think about it like everything, a spectrum and the harder and longer I'm going, the more I will use just pure sugar. Like I'm doing the unbound gravel race in about a week and I'll be consuming gels and mix and maybe a little bit of solid food on that ride. But the majority of it will be gels and mix stuff because it's going to be bumpy and I'm going to be tired and I'm going to be falling wheels and going down rutted river crossings and whatever else they're going to throw at us. So I'm not going to have a lot of time to sit up and unpack a bar and chew it. Right. Um, but that said, there are moments when we want to get food in our mouths, not necessarily a gel. And one little tip that I can offer that's a bit more on the pragmatic side is it's easy for people to, um, get really stressed out when they're trying to get the food out of the pocket and then they're trying to get it in their mouths and they get it in their mouths. And then the next thing they assume is they have to swallow it as quickly as possible. But that's actually not the case. Remember, digestion begins in the mouth. It begins with saliva. The enzymes that are in your saliva break down the food. So be a squirrel. Take a bite of whatever you're you're going to take, whether maybe it's your Rice Krispie Treat and you're on a group ride and it's going kind of fast. Or maybe you're on a group ride and it's a little bit windy, so you're not really comfortable sitting there holding the bar and like munching on it. It doesn't mean you have to swallow it. Just bite it in half, stick the pieces in your cheeks, and just hang out. And about a K later, this is going to be super disgusting. It's going to be a little bit mushy. And guess what? Then it's easier to swallow. There's no rush there. As long as you can breathe, you're fine, right? So don't be in a hurry. Uh, the point I'm kind of making is sometimes we stress ourselves out about the stress of getting the food in, and there's not as much stress there as we think there is. So just take your time a little bit, right? Um, if you're trying to get a gel in your mouth because you know you need it and you're in a race situation... You just have to think ahead and look for the right opportunity, right? I don't know what kind of racing you're doing or what kind of event you're doing, but mountain biking, um, when I'm cresting a climb, I'll just back off the pedals, reach back, pull out the gel, rip off the top, boom, down it goes. Wrapper goes in my pocket because I'm not going to throw anything in the middle of the forest. And then I begin my descent, right? Then I'm dropping my post and I'm in the position and I'm ready to go. But I'll, I'll sit up and make that process happen. And I do it when I can see the trail and it's predictable. So I know that I can have one hand on the bars and not hit a rock or a tree or whatever. You can apply the same kind of logic to a gravel race. You've got a known stretch of road that's a little bit more more um, steady grade and also not you know not super rocky, not a lot of ruts, whatever. That's your moment of opportunity. 
If you know a little bit about the course, you can sometimes think ahead and plan a bit like, okay, I'm going to need a gel here. I'm going to need a gel there. I'm going to do it at the beginning of this climb. I know I'm going to take a gel. Boom, it's done. So try to look tactically at the course and think ahead and plan a bit for when, not just the interval at which you want to eat, which people, I think they commonly do that. They're thinking like, I need to have a gel every 45 minutes or whatever their strategy is to get this many grams of carbs. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if the race pattern looks like four huge mountains, well, are you going to have a gel halfway down the first descent? Probably not, right? Unless it's a really chill descent. So we want to think topographically when we apply our food timing, right? So knowing the course in advance can have an advantage for you there. That's what I would offer. And I would say too, along the lines of like, chewing your food slowly or letting it sit there a bit. Like you don't have to really separate chewing your food or eating your food and drinking. Like I'll put a bite of food in, take a squirt of water and like yeah. chew it up together and it'll go down a lot easier. You're not going to get food getting stuck going down. Like do it together and it helps you digest it a lot better. Jeez. It sounds like racing is a lot easier for you guys than it is for me. Like oh, on the limit. <laughs> like, if you get this gel down as quick as possible, like I'm about to pass out. Um, so let me, I agree with everything you said. I think that was really brilliant how you, uh, how you laid out the anticipate, anticipating where you're going to eat. So this is something that high level riders are constantly looking for. They're like, dude, the pace is high. Like I know I need to eat right now. Like where's a good spot. All right. Right. And so you're constantly looking for that, that, that spot. And so what I will say is fueling is something you have to stay on top of. Think of it like your cell phone battery, Right. When your cell phone dies and you plug it in, it doesn't turn on straight away. It's dead for, for a little bit of time. And then it slowly has to charge back up. And your glycogen is the same. So I'd say be proactive about fueling. Don't wait until you're like bonking. Stay on top of it. We know that taking larger amounts, and when I say larger amounts, I think we can, we can say like 25 gram servings every... 20 minutes is more efficient than five gram servings every five minutes. So don't stress out about it too much, like, but try to be consuming carbs every 20 minutes. Like, and here's another thing. So I think it's really important to, for people to understand that cycling is a big stress on the body. And especially in a competitive scenario, it sounds like you're racing. So your body is, is already stress it's already on the limit adding something like a protein there's an there's a cost to break that food down so that cost is effectively energy your, your body has to now take energy to break that food down and convert it to glycogen or break down protein or and that energy is going to take away from the energy that you can apply to the pedals your body only has so much energy right so if you're putting things into your body while you're out there riding that have a high rate or high cost to digest, the technical term is thermogenic effect of food, right? So if, and think about that, your body has to heat up to break down the food. So if your body has to put a bunch of fire or a bunch of wood into the fire. I always say that one wrong. But if your body has to put a bunch of wood into the fire to break down this food, it's taking away from your ability to drive more power to the pedals. So that's why it's, like Spencer said, 
it's such a good choice to go for the drink mix and the gels because these are things that are so easily absorbed by your system and quickly converted into what do we want guys glycogen right so yeah i think that the the that was a good session guys we covered a lot of stuff on this on this round table please let us know if you guys enjoyed this episode do you guys have any closing thoughts I think the overarching thing is like, as far as becoming a better cyclist is focus on the all around health and health isn't just food. It isn't just training. It isn't just one thing. It's your flexibility. It's your, your bike fit, your sleep, your nutrition. Like they all go together just because you're good at one thing doesn't mean that you solve it all. You know, recovering is just as important as training. Like the, it all goes together. Um, and you're not going to solve one problem by just doing one thing. You have to do all of them really well together. And that's how you really make big progress. Well said. Um, I would just add that there were a lot of questions. I mean, we probably had 40 questions here and, uh, well, maybe not 40, but there's a lot of words I see. We answered, I don't know, eight of them. So if you submitted a question, sorry, we didn't get to it. I don't know, Zach, how we want to handle that. If there's a if we want to just do another episode where we come back and hit some of the other ones or what the plan is, but we can discuss that at some point. Uh, but apologies to those of you who submitted good questions and we just didn't, we don't have quite time to get to all of them. There are a lot of good questions that people submitted on Instagram. So I just want to say, I appreciate that. And uh, thanks for your understanding. We couldn't get to them all. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks Colby. And, th th and that's, that's also true. We, there's more questions than we can, we can answer. We do like to give really detailed answers and, and, and turn each question into a little bit more than just that surface level question. That's how we provide depth and context to all of the listeners. And I think our objective with this podcast is to create an environment where everybody can come and learn, whether you've been riding for 50 years or six months or three months, you can come into the team EF coaching performance podcast and, and, and learn something. And this is an all new format for us. This is the first time we've done a round table answering the user questions. And you let us know if you want us to continue with this part, side of the show. Let us know in the comments on Instagram, send us an email. You let us know and we'll keep making them. Stay tuned for another shout out on Instagram where we ask you guys for questions. And if your questions didn't get answered this week, don't let that discourage you from submitting them next time. Agreed. That's it for, agreed. Everybody agreed. That's it for this episode of the Team EF Coaching Performance Podcast. Don't forget, if you would like to get some advice from any of our excellent expert cycling coaches, you can do so. Head to teamefcoaching.com, check out our coaches, view our plans, and send us an email or book a consultation if you'd like to learn more because we would love to be a part of your cycling journey regardless of where you are at today. We would love to meet you there. That's it for this episode. So from... Myself, Spencer Miller, and Colby Pierce, thank you guys very much, and we'll see you on the next episode.